We continue our study in the book of Philippians. So please turn with me today in Philippians chapter 3. Today is our ninth sermon in the book of Philippians. Uh, we have titled the sermon series, Journey of a Joyful Life. And Paul started off this letter celebrating God's genuine work of grace in the Philippian church, warmly thanking them for their partnership in the gospel and praying for their future growth in the faith. And in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul called the Philippian church to hold fast to the word of life and to rejoice in mutual sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Um, he then shows Timothy and Epaphroditus to be Christ-like models that are worthy of our imitation. And now in chapter 3, Paul further expounds upon that word of life, contrasting false teaching with his own conversion and his present confession. So last week, Tinnis helped us understand the first seven verses in chapter 3 about faith alone in Christ alone. And the Apostle Paul gives himself as an example of trusting in Christ only and not in his privileges as an Israelite or not in the works that he did as a Jew. And Paul writes his passage to the Philippians so they would Follow Paul in rejoicing in the Lord by, by resisting the false teachers who were trusting in their flesh and who were glorying in their own works instead of Christ alone. And the title of my sermon today is Knowing Christ. And this title comes from verse, comes from verse 8 as well as verse 10. Both, both verses use these words. And Paul is teaching us today that all the advantages in the world... All the riches in the world, all the religions in the world, all that the world counts as valuable really is all a loss in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Nothing in the entire world compares to knowing Jesus. So please stand with me. We will read from verse 1 to 11 just to remember the context from verse 1. We will be looking at verse 8 to 11 today, but we will read from verse 1 to verse 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would help us to know you better today. Father, we do pray for the power of your resurrection to be manifested in our lives. We pray, Lord, we won't just go through the motions today. We pray we won't be satisfied with compromise. We pray, Lord, we won't be satisfied with nominal cultural Christianity. We pray, Lord, that the Spirit would speak to our hearts today and would show us, Lord, where we need to change so that we can know you better. If there's sin that's keeping us, Lord, today from knowing you, from loving you, from obeying you, please reveal that to us and grant us repentance. We pray today, please, Lord, bring a revival in our hearts, Lord, that we would know you as Paul did in this very intimate, very experiential way. We pray, Lord, for your help. We pray the Spirit of God would teach us and draw us to Jesus today. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Jules Henry Poincare was a French mathematician. He was a theoretical physicist. He was an engineer. And he was a philosopher of science who, who died in 1912. He was asked to share a eulogy at the funeral of a friend. And at the graveside, he said these very sad words. He said, It matters little what God one believes in. It is the faith and not the God that makes miracles. In our postmodern culture, this philosophy is still very popular today. You may have heard people say something similar. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. And this means that if you completely trust in your religion, it doesn't matter whether it is objectively true or not. All that matters is whether it is true for you. And Paul could not have disagreed more. Paul argues in all of his letters that it is the object of our faith that makes all the difference between heaven and hell. The object of our faith, as Paul clearly shows, as he has been showing us, is in Christ alone. And our faith depends on what Christ has accomplished. Our faith depends on what Christ has done in his death on Calvary and his resurrection from the grave. We are, justi we are justified by grace through faith in the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, this French mathematician's view of faith is not very different from otherworldly views that are still very much alive today, otherworldly religions that are still alive today. And so many people believe that they just need to be a good person in order to go to heaven. They just need to do the right amount of works and deeds in order to be accepted by God. And people who believe that compare themselves with other people and think, I'm good enough because I'm better than my no-good neighbor who, who smokes and drinks and, and never goes to church. 
I usually go to church. I don't get drunk. I don't, I don't um, drink or gamble. Sure, maybe I buy a lottery ticket every once in a while, but I don't gamble as much as he does. I don't hit my wife. Well, we, we yell a lot, but, I, but I've never hit her. And that's the way people justify themselves and convince themselves that they're going to get to heaven by just being good people. And they compare themselves with other people and figure that they're in the top half and that's what's going to help them get into heaven. At the end of World War I, General Pershing sent word to the troops in Europe announcing a victory parade through the, the streets of Paris. And there were two requirements for the soldiers to qualify to march in this parade. They had to have a good record and they had to be at least 186 centimeters tall. And word came to one company of American soldiers and the excitement built about how great it would be to march in the victory parade there in France. And being Americans, no one knew for sure just how tall 186 centimeters was. But the men began comparing themselves and lining up back to back to see who was the tallest. And the taller men in the company were, were, were ribbing the shorter ones. Too bad for you, shorty. We'll think of you when we're in Paris. And then the officer came to find out if there were any candidates for the parade. And he put the mark on the wall at 186 centimeters. And some men took one look at the mark and they walked away, realizing that they weren't even close. And others tried, but fell short by a small amount. And finally, the tallest man in the troop stood up to the mark and he squared his shoulders. But he discovered that he was a quarter of an inch shy of the mark. And when those men compared themselves with themselves, some thought that they were tall enough to qualify. But when the standard came, it proved that nobody qualified. And even though the Bible teaches that by grace we are saved through faith, and this is not our own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest we would boast, people still persist that as long as you are a, a decent person, as long as you don't rob banks, as long as you don't kill anybody, as long as you're a good person by, by human standards, by the standards that everybody else sets, you will be able to get into heaven based on your, on your good works. And as we saw in our last study, Paul argued that if ever there was a person who could be right with God on the basis of doing good works, on the basis of keeping the Jewish law, it was himself, the Apostle Paul. He had the credentials by birth. He had the track record by experience. But on the Damascus Road, he came to realize that all those things he was counting on, all those things that he was depending on for a right standing with God were worse than worthless. And he threw all on the trash heap and laid hold of Christ through faith. And in our text today, Paul continues to warn us against a counterfeit Christianity. 
a fake Christianity, a Christianity that mixes faith in Christ with faith in our works. And Paul shows that true Christians count all human merit as loss in order to gain Christ through faith. My first point this morning is in verse 8 and verse 9. Knowing Christ transforms us to live a life of faith. So Paul writes in verse 8, the first part of verse 8, look there in your Bibles. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You can underline the word knowing Christ Jesus. That's the first time he says it here. What he's saying is one can take all the advantages in the world, all the riches in the world, all the religions of the world, and it is a loss in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Nothing in the entire world compares to knowing Jesus. You know, people talk about heaven. They talk about going to heaven. I don't know of too many people who, who want to go to hell. People want to be saved from hell. They want to go to heaven. But the problem is, Many people want heaven without Jesus. And Paul is clearly saying that salvation from sin and hell is a person. It's not about works. It's not a system. It is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And when you talk about heaven, when you talk about heaven, are you thinking about a place where, where, where you play the, the perfect game of of golf, or the place where, where you can eat as much food as you want, as much milk and honey as you could possibly imagine? Or is heaven a place where you will be completely healthy, where there will be no more pain and no more tears? Or is heaven the place where, where you will be reunited with your, with your pets that have died, or the place where you'll be reunited with loved ones? Or do you think of heaven as a place where you will be with Jesus. Where you will be worshipping Jesus. Heaven without Christ does not exist. Salvation from all of our troubles. Salvation from all the effects of sin. Salvation from sin and, and the judgment thereof is a person. The person Jesus Christ. And our salvation starts and ends with Jesus. Christ is not merely the means to gain mercy, but mercy is the means by which we gain Christ. The goal of the Christian life is to know Christ and to be like Christ. Someone once said, one of the most dangerous forms of human error is forgetting what one is trying to to achieve. That is especially true when it comes to our Christian faith. It's easy to get sidetracked, isn't it? We need to be clear and we need to be focused at all times on what it is that we are after. What is our goal? What do we desire the most? And the goal of the Christian life, as Paul is showing us here, is to know Christ. It is to be like Jesus. 
And if we forget that goal, we're not likely to achieve it. We'll miss the mark. What is the goal of your life? Look at what Paul says in the rest of verse 8, the second half of verse 8. He says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul has expressed this idea before, and he's done it over and over so that we won't miss it. Last week, look at verse 7. We read there, he counted all things as loss for the sake of Christ. In our passage today, in verse 8, he says, In view of surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I may gain Christ. Look at verse 9, that I may be found in Christ. Look at verse 10, that I may know Him. Our salvation, our Christianity, centers in the person of Jesus Christ. If you have Christ, you have it all. If you don't have Christ, you don't have anything. And one of the ultimate benefits that belong to those who have a right standing before God is knowing Jesus Christ, is knowing Him personally and savingly. And the question again and again that we need to ask is, do you know Jesus in this way? Are you sure you know Jesus in this way? Notice in verse 8, Paul says, look there, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord. My Lord, he says. Not your Lord or the Lord. He says, my Lord. And every true Christian can say with Paul that he is Christ Jesus, my Lord. Is Jesus your Lord? Do you know him in this way? Look at verse 9. He says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Another benefit that belongs to those who are right with God is Christ's righteousness that is imputed to us. Now, that's a fancy word. It's a theological term, but it's an important word for us to understand. The word impute means to, to assign. It means to credit. It means to attribute or ascribe, okay? And Paul spent many years trying to be righteous before God. He, he wanted to be perfect. He wanted to stand righteous before God in his own efforts, in his own work. And he worked day by day to, to get and maintain an outward righteousness before God. But when he encountered Jesus, his filthy rags he had to repent of. And instead, he received an imputed righteousness. This was credited to him, as it says in verse 9 there. And Paul realized that his, his own righteousness was worthless. It was, it was filthy rags in God's sight. And Paul's own righteousness was not perfect. If he stood before God based on his own standards and his own righteousness, he would have fallen very short. And so he needed a righteousness that was not his own but that would be credited to him. And that was the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it was received by faith. 
And Paul's righteousness counted for nothing, but Christ's righteousness counted for everything. Remember last week, Tinnis shared with us the story of Martin Luther and his message that started the whole Protestant Reformation. I think in many ways, Martin Luther was like the Apostle Paul. He was counting on his own works. He signed up as an Augustinian monk, a very rigid, um, a very rigid lifestyle to try and earn his own righteousness. And he realized that he fell far short. And his message was the same as the Apostle Paul's as he studied the Scriptures, as, as he read the Bible, as he discovered the Gospel once again. And he taught that salvation and subsequent eternity in heaven is not earned by good deeds, but is received as a free gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ as our Redeemer from sin and subsequent eternity in hell. Remember what Paul is saying in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Go back to verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And Paul started this chapter by warning the Philippian church against false teachers. And the false teachers he's referring to were the Judaizers who were, who were mixing the law of Moses with the teachings of Christ. And Martin Luther, he recognized the same false teaching in the Roman Catholic Church. You know, today, 500 years after the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church still have not changed their view of this doctrine of imputation. Right here that we see in this verse. This is very important for us to understand so we can help our Roman Catholic friends. The Reformation happened because of this doctrine. The Roman Catholic Church rejects imputation, but instead teaches the righteousness of Christ has to be infused in us. So they believe in this doctrine of being infused with the righteousness of Christ, where we become perfect, where we become holy, completely. And that's why they have to keep on going to confession over and over again because, because they, they, they're not perfect. They fall short. Their doctrine fails them. And they have to go to the priest and ask for forgiveness so they can be perfect again, at least for the next two minutes before they sin again. J.R. Pecker, he made a comment on this. J.R. Pecker, a faithful pastor and theologian and Christian author, he said, the reason why the Reformation happened and Protestant churches came into being was that Luther and his fellow reformers believed that papal Rome had apostatized from the gospel so completely in this respect that no faithful Christian could with a good conscience continue within her ranks. And Luther discovered that the Greek word for justification that was in the New Testament was the word dikaios, which didn't mean to make righteous, which was being taught by the, the Catholic Church. He realized that that word rather meant to regard as righteous, to count as righteous, to declare as righteous. And that is imputation. That is the word imputation. 
And this was the moment of, of awakening for Martin Luther. Eventually, Luther understood that what Paul was speaking of here was a righteousness that God gives freely by His grace to people who don't have a righteousness of their own and by which a person could be reconciled to a, a holy and a righteous God. And he had discovered or he had recovered the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, faith is not something we must work up as Paul is teaching us. It's simply the hand that takes what God freely gives to us. Salvation does not depend on our faith, but on Christ and His faithfulness. Faith does not save us. Faith does not make us righteous. Christ saves us. And God declares us righteous based on what Christ did on the cross. Not based on what we've done. Not based on what our parents have done. Not based on what we've achieved. Faith is simply receiving what God has promised. Faith looks to God. Faith doesn't look to self and not to any human merit or works. Faith is putting our trust in what Jesus has accomplished. For Paul, salvation, sanctification, and our spirituality were not some things that we could do in our own human effort, not some religious process of, of keeping the law, not a matter of, of ritual, tradition, and custom, but it was knowing and loving and obeying and serving the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul did not concentrate on the process. Paul here is emphasizing the person of Jesus Christ. Knowing Christ transforms us to live a life of faith. Again, do you know Christ? I'm not asking if you know about Christ. I'm asking if you know Christ. You know, I know about John MacArthur. I've read his biography. I've seen him preach on TV. I've seen him preach in person. I've read a number of books that he has written. I know a bit about his family. But I don't know John MacArthur because I've never been introduced to him. I don't have a relationship with him. You know, it's possible. It's possible to have knowledge about Christ, even from studying his word, even by going to church, and yet not know Christ himself. In fact, you can read and you can study your Bible your whole life and never get to know Jesus in an intimate, in a personal, experiential way. And Paul is asking us today, he's asking all of us, can we say that we are found in Christ? Can you say that you count everything as loss because of the eternal value of knowing Jesus Christ? Can you say that you are hanging on to your own righteousness? Can you say that you are not 
hanging on to your parents' faith or to your good works? Can you say that through faith in Jesus you are clinging on to His righteousness? Have you been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ to live a life of faith? My second point is in verse 10 and verse 11. Knowing Christ transforms us to live a life of fellowship. Knowing Christ transforms us to live a life of fellowship. Look at verse 10. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So earlier Paul wrote about this deep experiential knowledge of Christ that is a benefit that belongs to believers. But Paul wanted more. Specifically, Paul wanted to know Him. In verse 10 he says, I want to know Him. He's talking about Christ. He wants to know about this power of His resurrection. He wants to experience this more. Now we know Paul came to know a little bit about the power of the resurrected Lord when he was struck down, remember, on the, on the Damascus Road. Even though not all conversions are as dramatic as Paul's are, all conversions do require the same power of the, the risen, resurrected Jesus Christ. Because they all require God to, to raise the sinner from the dead to life. Think of some scriptures, other scriptures that compare conversion to, to opening the eyes of the blind so that they can turn from darkness to light and to delivering captives from Satan's domain to God's kingdom. These are not things that can be accomplished through human persuasion or through the self-improvement program. They require the same mighty power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul, remember, Paul is writing this statement here in the book of Philippians, 30 years after he has been saved by faith in Christ. After Paul had initially trusted in Christ for salvation, his goal was to become a nominal Christian, wasn't it? No. His goal was to know Christ better. Paul did not say, I want to know more theology, I want to know more doctrine. Although he knew that to know Christ, he had to have a, a doctrinal understanding of the scriptures, doctrine. He needed teaching. He knew that. But Paul realized that Christianity is Christ. And real meaning, purpose, and sense to life was found in his relationship with his Savior. There was nothing nominal about the Apostle Paul's relationship with Christ. 30 years. Just think about that. 30 years after Paul did not get tired of knowing Christ more intimately. I hope you can say that about your wife or your husband. When you met your spouse, for those who are married, you know, you fell in love and, and you got married and your life was permanently changed, wasn't it? But I'm sure you could agree with me as you've lived together for more than a year, more than two years, more than three years, you've got to know your spouse better. And you've grown to love them better. And like any relationship, you need to cultivate that 
romance, that relationship. And if you meet the person of your dreams, but then never see them again, you won't have a relationship, will you? You must spend time together, getting to know one another through conversation and shared experiences. You learn about their history. You learn about their family, their, their likes and their dislikes, their hopes for the future. And if you do something to offend him or her, you ask for forgiveness. And you learn to work through difficulties in a, in a harmonious way. And it is the same, only much more so, when you meet Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Your relationship with Christ requires effort. It requires time. And the more time you spend growing to know Him, the more you are different. The more peace and the more joy you experience. And the driving passion of Paul's life was to know Christ more. This is not just head knowledge. This is experiential knowledge of the resurrected and the living Christ. Look at verse 10. He says, and the power of His resurrection. Paul wanted to know the power of Christ's resurrection in his own life. He did not want to know about just any power. He wanted to know the power experientially. And Paul makes it clear that a, a Christian can experience in degrees the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Have you trusted in that power? This is supernatural power provided by God to live the Christian life. It's a power to give victory over sin. It's a power to give victory over your, your bad habits. It's a power to give victory over your, your negative attitudes. It's a power to be filled with the, the Holy Spirit so that we can produce love and we can produce joy and peace and goodness and meekness and faithfulness and kindness and self-control. Have you experienced that power? A power to live a practical, righteous life for Christ. Turn with me quickly to Ephesians. Keep your finger here. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, I want you to notice as we, as we read this passage that this is a prayer of Paul for the Ephesian church, which was that they might know the supernatural power in their lives. And this is a wonderful prayer that you could pray for yourself or they can pray for each other. Look at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpassed knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Do you pray that for yourself? Do you pray that for your family? 
you pray that for your church? That we may know the supernatural power, the power of the resurrected Savior in our lives? Do you know Christ in that way? Have you experienced Him in that way? Verse 10, he says, and may share his sufferings. And may share his sufferings. Another version translates that as, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And Paul longed to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. This is not suffering because of sickness or financial loss or, or um, suffering because of, of, of a loved one that's, that's died or even unsaved people have these type of sufferings, don't they? This is a suffering for Christ. This is a suffering for the cause of the gospel. And Paul was willing to suffer social and perhaps physical persecution that Christ might be glorified and that the world may know Christ. We know that's true. He's already experienced that. And Paul thought Christ is to be the most important cause in the world. And for that, Paul would be ready to stand and he would be ready to die, to know the real Christ, to share in his sufferings. But this does not come without effort as well. This does not come without a toil. Jesus himself said, if any man will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Do you know Christ in that way? The Apostle Paul said the same thing in another way in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Have you ever suffered for your faith? Have you ever stood up for Jesus when people were, were mocking Jesus? He says in verse 10, becoming like him in his death. And Paul desired a genuine holiness of life. And Christ died to defeat sin. Christ died that we would be victorious over sin. We would be victorious over our fears and over our insecurities. And Paul wanted to be so identified with Christ that Christ's death would become his death. Paul wanted to die more and more to his sin and to himself. And he wanted to live more and more for Christ. He wanted the selfless life that Christ displays in his dying for sin. And Paul wanted to be a blessing to others, as was Christ in his death. And Paul clearly understood that this meant death to his own desires, death to his own selfish wants his own selfish fantasies, his own selfish goals. And Paul knew there is no gain without discipline. There is no gain without pain. Do you know Christ in this way? Do we really want to be conformed to Christ's death? We're really wanting to suffer in his, to, to fellowship in his suffering? I think we are more like the man who, who wrote to the, to the Internal Revenue Service. And he wrote this note and he said, Dear sirs, my conscience is bothering me and I can't sleep. I'm enclosing a check for 
for $50. If I can't sleep tonight, I will send you the rest. That's not conformity. That's, that's compromise, isn't it? That's compromise. Christ will be satisfied with nothing less than conformity to his death. And then lastly, look at verse 11. And that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I must admit, this is a very difficult verse to understand. I think it means that Paul, by living daily for Christ, is giving evidence that he is a true Christian. That he's experiencing the, the resurrected life and he's experiencing the power and ultimately he will be resurrected from the dead after he dies. And his perseverance in Christ will, will give him a place in the final resurrection. And I think that what this verse is talking about, perseverance. The resurrection is complete and final stage of our salvation. And it is the ultimate experience of knowing Christ perfectly. And then we will be face to face with Christ in our resurrected bodies. And that's what we must persevere for. That's what we must look forward towards. Because it doesn't get any better than that. And one day, this all will be past. And all that remains and all that lasts is what we've done for Christ, right? So let me conclude this morning by going back to the question, what is your goal? What is your goal? To know Christ and to become more like Him? Is that your goal? Or just to go through the motions, just to tick off the boxes, just to put on a, a preface before everybody? What is your goal this morning? What is your life goal? If your life goal is to know Christ, then you will set before yourself each week this goal. This is something that has to happen in a very disciplined way, in a very intentional way. Set this goal to know Christ and be like Him. And ask the Lord for opportunities to see this applied in your life throughout the week, in your workplace, at home. You will have temptations, of course, where you will need to rely on the power of His resurrection, where you will need to go back to the very gospel and remind yourself who you are in Christ, positionally. You will face trials where you come to know the, the fellowship of His sufferings. You will encounter irritations where you must learn to be conformed to His death, to overcome your selfish habits. And pray for this. View it all as an opportunity to know Christ and to remind you that it is preparing you for that great day when the Lord comes and you'll be raised up in glory with Him for all eternity. That needs to be our goal, folks. And I encourage you to take this time to examine yourself. But to the unsaved this morning, those who are not sure whether they are in Christ, whether they know Christ, for you without Christ, for you who are searching for the real meaning of life, I point you to Jesus Christ. When one meets Christ, he has found the key to life and death. And after one comes to Christ, he spends the rest of his life getting to know Christ better. And you can know Christ. You can know the resurrected power of Christ. You can be changed. 
You can be free from your sin by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. Trust in the work that Christ has accomplished on the cross, not on your works, not on your efforts, not in your religion, not in your culture. When you come to know Christ, you will say, it doesn't get any better than this. May Christ be your greatest treasure that surpasses everything else that this world has to offer. And may you glorify Him in your life this week, being used by God for His eternal purposes. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand the ramifications of this sermon this morning, of this portion of Scripture that we have read. Help us, Lord, please, not to leave here this morning without responding to you, to the Spirit. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to live lives, really, that are on fire for you. Help us to live lives that make a difference for you, Lord, and your glory and for your eternal purposes. Lord, we do pray that you would forgive us, Lord, where we have failed. Forgive us, Lord, where we have held on to the things of this world, where we have wanted to love the things of this world rather than wanting to know Christ better. Give us a greater appetite, Lord, today for Jesus' righteousness. So, Lord, we pray, please, apply these truths to us throughout this week that we may honor you with our lives. And, Lord, if there are people here today that don't know you as their Savior, who have been trusting in their own righteousness, that you would show them, Lord, that the only way that we can be right with God is through a relationship with Jesus Christ, is through trusting in the very death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there's someone that needs to be saved today, Lord, I pray that you would grant them repentance and grant them faith to believe. Help us this week, Lord, to be sharing this wonderful good news with those around us who are dying in their sins, who are trapped in their religion, who are trapped in their own self-righteousness. Give us boldness, Lord, this week to be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. Lord, please, we pray, may you be honored and glorified through our lives this week. May you be exalted, Lord. May you receive the glory that you deserve, Lord. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.